Well, friends, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 11 as we continue through uh, the Gospel of Mark and our study just of God's Word. And as you turn there, I was reminded um, this past week of a story I'd heard really a number of years ago of a minister who was driving home after his, he had delivered his Sunday morning message. He had stood before his congregation and he had delivered his Sunday morning message. And as he felt he did just a wonderful job. And so as he's on his way home, uh, driving home with his wife and his wife sitting next to him in the passenger seat, just begins to express to her how great of a job he thought he did. Begins to express to her how much he felt he had such great insight and how well he felt he, he developed his points. He bragged about his delivery and his stories and went on and on about the impression that he had made on others. And as his pride and his ego continued to swell, as he just went on and on about the, the, the job that he thought he did that morning, he leaned over to his wife in just kind of a rather ego-filled and prideful way, and he said, how many wonderful messages do you think were delivered this morning across our nation? She looked over at him and said, really, matter of fact, one less than you think. (laughs) See, sometimes we can hear about pride and we can hear someone talk about pride and we can, we get a certain picture that comes to mind. Sometimes we picture someone walking around with their head in the clouds and acting like they're far better than anyone else around them. But at the end of the day, pride, when you boil it down, pride is, is self-reliance. Pride is a willingness just to focus on ourselves, to depend on ourselves, or to assume the best in ourself. A quick test to see if, if you wrestle with pride or deal with pride is if you're quickly offended. But that's a sign of an area in your life where, where perhaps pride has taken root and it's something that can allow God to work. Pride is something that we've looked at often in our study in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen it repeatedly. We've seen it in the lives of the disciples that multiple times Jesus has been teaching and instructing the disciples. And he's continually dealing with pride, this desire to put themselves first, this, this desire to elevate themselves over others and to continually want to be first. And Jesus Jesus continually addresses it in the lives of the disciples. He also continually addresses it with the religious leaders, with the religionists of his day, that it's continually there. It's continually coming up. In fact, it's probably the biggest obstacle that Jesus has to deal with them. It, It comes out in all sorts of religious expressions and religious statements, but at the end of the day, you bring it down to the root issue, and the root issue is pride. That is continually dealt with and is continually seen in everything that we've looked at in the Gospel of Mark up to this point. And I think that he has to repeatedly address it because pride is a persistent struggle in the life of an individual. In fact, I believe pride is a persistent struggle in each of our lives, that it's a constant struggle. It's something that we'll continually deal with. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul talking about his struggle with sin and his struggle with the sinful nature, he says that when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. A continual reminder that regardless of how good I try to be and how much I I try to put others first, how much I try to focus on Christ, that the prideful, sinful self is always there. That it's the root of all sin. In fact, I believe when, when it comes to pride in our lives, that pride oftentimes, when it is least felt, most often it is most powerful. 
So as we continue through our gospel, the gospel of Mark, I want to share with you a message that I've called the limits of pride and to look specifically at an issue or really a confrontation and a conversation that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. In fact, not just the religious leaders, but every individual represent, who represents the religious and social leaders in Jesus's day come to him with a series of questions to try to trap Jesus and to try to expose him. So I want to look at this encounter and share with you Uh, four limits of pride in our lives. So let's look at this together. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse number 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. See, these religious leaders, what we just looked at is the first of ultimately six very confrontational conversations that these individuals are really arguments that these individuals have with Jesus and they come to challenge him. Their goal is to, is to trap him, to expose him, to make him look foolish in front of those who are there, those who are listening in front of his own followers. In the end, they want to find a way to destroy him. They want to wipe out his influence. They want to wipe out his teaching. They want to wipe out his power. They want to wipe out anything that has to do with Jesus. He's been disrupting their lives. He's been disrupting their livelihood. If you remember when we looked just before Easter, we looked at how Jesus came and he, he drove out all of the individuals selling things in the temple and how this was really a system set up to make money and how Jesus confronts that and he deals with it. These leaders are coming and they're trying to, to really challenge Jesus. And so Jesus answers them, not with an answer, but he answers with them with a question. And his question both stumps them and exposes them at the same time. And their unwillingness to answer really reveals the depth of pride in their own heart and how committed they are to opposing Jesus. So it's in this encounter and really many of the other ones we've looked at that we can see some things we, we looked at just before Easter. If you remember, we looked at the Jesus cleansing the, or cleaning the temple, driving them out. And you remember, we looked at the fig tree. And the, there was a, three lessons we looked at that when we looked at what a religious life versus a Christ-centered life looks like. And the three lessons that we looked at is that first, it can look good from a distance. Secondly, it does not, it cannot, it cannot respond positively to, it cannot respond positively to any way to a healthy environment that they were in the temple, they were cleansing out the temple and yet they could not respond to it. And then lastly is that it's centered on self. And we can see all three of those at work in these religious leaders when they come to Jesus. Number one is that it looks good from a distance. They certainly look good. They had all of their robes on. They had all of the things that would make them look good and religious. But at the end of the day, when you got close to them, they were nasty. They were rude. They were mean. They were ignorant. They were, they were just distasteful people that you'd not want to be around. They were malicious. Secondly, they can't respond to positive environments. They're in the very presence of Jesus, who's continually teaching and exposing and revealing things and giving truth, speaking God's word. They're in the temple when this takes place, and yet they can't even respond to what Jesus 
is saying or doing. And then lastly, they come not looking for truth, but a way to advance their own agenda. They're very centered on themselves. And so Jesus forcefully confronts them. He forcefully confronts them. He forcefully exposes them, not to shame them, but rather to, to warn them. When you look through the scripture, every single time that Jesus is, is dealing with the religious leaders, he exposes them to repeatedly show them how empty a religious, prideful life can be to show how fruitless a prideful life can be. His desire is that they'll turn from their ways, they'll repent, and they'll, and they'll find life that only God can bring. In the book of Acts, there's a time where Peter is talking to individuals, and he says to repent so that times of refreshing can come from the Lord. That's what Jesus' desire is for these religious leaders, as it is for us, that we can be refreshed and renewed in God's presence. But as long as pride is center, as long as self is center, that can never take place. I've been in my own devotions. I've been reading through the prophet uh, Jeremiah and the book of Jeremiah and his encounter with the nation of Israel and just confronting them and trying to expose their sin. And it's the the final days before they they go into judgment and punishments brought. And there's a point in Jeremiah chapter 2 when God is speaking through Jeremiah and he's speaking to the people. And he says this, he says, I have this against you. He says this, and in essence, he says, you have... You have forsaken me, the spring of water, the, one, the source of life, and you've gone and tried to build little cisterns and wells that can't hold water. He says, you've kind of turned to your own ways. You've focused on what it is that you can do. All the while, you've turned your back on the very thing that you're searching for. And any time we begin to focus on ourselves and make our lives, the cent- our, ourself the center of our life and the purpose of our life, we do that exact same thing that we, we really turn our back on the source of what God wants to give us. That's his grace, his goodness, and his mercy. And we begin to focus on ourselves, and we lose sight of what it is that God desires to do. So through this, I'd love to just share with you quickly four limits of pride in our lives and how they can impact us. So the first one, when it comes to pride, pride limits the work of Christ in our lives. Pride limits the work of Christ in our lives. Look in verse 27 again. It says they arrived again in, the te- in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do these things? Verse 27 says that it was the elders and the chief priests and, uh, and the teachers of the law who came to him. All three of those represent the key leaders for all of Israel, all the nation. And so Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he's disrupting everything. He's coming and he's disrupting everything, which is really in your life what Christ does when we make Christ the center. He continually challenges and works in places of our lives that we've yet to surrender. He's willing to disrupt anything and everything if it's not aligned up with who he is. If it's not your life being transformed and changed to be more like him. But then they come to him and in Matthew, in the account of Matthew has of this story that takes place, Matthew doesn't just merely say that Jesus is walking through the temple. He actually says that Jesus is teaching. So these religious leaders come up, Jesus is teaching, he has the crowds around him, perhaps he's got children around him, he's got his disciples around him, he's got others there, he's teaching, he's giving instruction, perhaps he's in the middle of one of his parables, perhaps he's in the middle of, of, of just giving instruction, expounding on scripture, and these religious leaders come up to him and they say, Jesus, we're, and they interrupt a mid-sentence and say, who gave you this authority? Really what they're saying is, who do you think you are? to come into this place, mess up our religious system, tell us what to do, 
and try to put a whole new spin on Scripture. Jesus, who do you think you are? That's the challenge that they're putting to Jesus. And see, pride will always limit the work of Christ in our lives. Whether or not we utter those words, when we live a prideful life, a life centered on self, we may not utter the words, Jesus, who do you think you are? But sometimes by our actions or our choice of action, we say the very same thing. We say, Jesus, who do you think you are to tell me that I can't do this? Who do you think you are to tell me that I shouldn't allow this to be a part of my life? That we we really challenge Jesus' authority when we live a life that's centered on self. A willingness to not allow Christ to be first, to be central, to be the center of everything. Pride will always limit the work of Christ in your life. I want you to look with me in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 10. It says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. But look at that verse 10. Really, all of it says it, but verse 10, if you can put verse 10 on the screen one more time. It says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus can also be revealed in our body. It says the work, we just celebrated Easter. We celebrated the death of Jesus Christ, really reflected on the death of Jesus Christ, and celebrated his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And it says that those events, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, that we continually carry those around in our lives. That every day there's an opportunity that Christ is looking to apply his death into your life so that his resurrection can be seen. The newness of Christ and his life can be seen in you. But a resurrection can only come after death has, been, has occurred. So wherever self continues to reign in your life, wherever self continues to be first, that means that there has been no death and there has been no resurrection. Christ cannot, there cannot be dual leadership in your life. It's either Christ or no one. That he won't say, well, I'll only, I'll be, I'll be influential in your life on Sundays from 10 to 12, or I'll be first in your life when you get up in the morning and you make your cup of coffee and you do your devotions and you write down a little verse. And then when you go into your work day and the things you say, the things you do, the behavior you're a part of, the persons, the people you're with in the evening, the things you do at night with them, those parts don't matter as long as you give me that little bit of time in the morning that I'm good. Jesus doesn't work that way. Pride will always disrupt the work of Christ in your life. It says we always carry around the death of Christ so that the life of Christ can be seen. He's always working. He's always desiring to work. He's always working to, to shape your life, to shape your mind, to shape your heart, to influence who you are that he's always seeking to reveal his life more and more and more. And the only way that comes is when we continually recognize the opportunities and the places that we can say no to self and allow Christ to reign. In Romans 7, it says that, that Jesus died so that you could belong to another, so that he could live in you, so that he could be alive in you and be first in all things. To stop responding to the work of Christ in our life is to stop growing. It's to stop growing. It's really to say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to, to really tell me I have to align my life with your words, with your way, with your standard? 
Pride will always limit the work of Christ in our life. I want you to see this in Mark chapter 9. I want you to see what Jesus, or Mark chapter, Mark chapter 8 rather, beginning in verse number 34. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In Luke's account of this, he doesn't just quote this passage, but he also says they must take up their cross daily. That it's a daily willingness to put Christ first. A daily willingness to say yes to Jesus. If you look in Mark 10 and just a few, chap- a few verses later from what we've just read, there's a time where, re- where a young man comes to Jesus. He's described as a rich young ruler. He's rich, he's influential, he's young, he's powerful. He comes to Jesus and he comes and he kneels before Jesus and he says, Jesus, good teacher, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus identifies in that moment the one thing that was holding his life, the pride that, that he had in, in his finances and his wealth. And Jesus says, if you do this, you can be my disciple. If you deal with your pride, you can be my disciple. If you deal with the thing that takes the first place in your life, you can follow me. It says the young man went away sad because he wasn't willing to say yes to Jesus. But what we see in Scripture, what I've just shared with you from Mark chapter 8 as well as Mark chapter 10, both of those times where we see Jesus has an individual come to him, they want his work in their life, but he makes it clear that to, to, for me to be able to have the freedom to work in your life, you're going to have to quit occupying the first place there. You're going to have to let Jesus, let his ways take over, let his way be first. And sometimes we can read these stories and, and we can think about how it, it seems like such a radical call to obedience. I mean, to really to go sell everything you have and give it away and then follow him. Or Jesus says, deny yourself every day. Take up your cross and follow me. That we can read those statements and they can seem like such radical statements, such radical obedience that Jesus calls for. And sometimes when we read those statements and we read those declarations, much like we've, we read in Mark chapter 8 when, when Jesus has them come, it's in those moments that we can look at them as a radical statement. And somehow in our minds, it's very easy to, to isolate it to then versus now. Well, that's what Jesus would ask that person to do. That's how Jesus would respond to them. It would be different to me now. And somehow we begin to separate the demand for radical obedience that Jesus gives to individuals in the New Testament to the demand for radical obedience in our lives today. But if you consider this, that in Acts chapter 2, the Bible talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of Jesus took up residence in every single individual who placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 2, there was an infilling with the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could be empowered to live for Christ and be a witness for Christ from that point forward. We, we live in a day that is post-Acts chapter 2. We live in a day where we recognize that the Holy Spirit is working in us. In fact, everything we read in the New Testament is explaining what the work of Christ has done and how it applies to your life. So we're living post-Acts chapter 2, post the Holy Spirit coming, post the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and he's still working today. So it's happened, not meaning that it happened and it's not continuing to happen, but it's happened. So we, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. 
That if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and we have the complete scripture where we can look and read and understand and through listening to messages, much like this morning or any, at any point you can pull up a podcast online or we can pull up helps and resources online and devotionals online and have devotionals deposited into our inboxes and we can pull up all sorts of books on Christian living and how to live for Christ that to really think that we have the Holy Spirit living in us today. We have the scriptures complete in front of us. We have endless supplies of resources around us that we can take and learn to follow Christ. Can we really think that Jesus expects less of us today than what he expected of those who came to him when they did? That he expects complete and radical, all-in obedience from every single person who says, I want to follow Jesus. And pride will always hinder and restrict what it is that Christ wants to do in your life. That it will always rival what Christ wants to do. He never settles for less than everything. On Wednesday nights, we've been looking, we really, a few weeks ago, we were studying and looking at Islam and really trying to disarm some of the myths with, myths with Islam and trying to understand how you can share your faith with a Muslim and just trying to build bridges and talk about that. And one of the things I had shared on the, Wednesday, the first Wednesday night, and I believe even just a few weeks ago, is sometimes we can make the very dangerous mistake of thinking we are the center of the gospel. We can make a very dangerous mistake of thinking in some way our lives are the center of what, God wants, of what God's doing. We can look at John 3.16 and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life and would look at that and we can take the really uh, many of the modern things we see with Christianity today and even the dangers sometimes we can see of extremes of where things are going and somewhere in that we can read John 3.16 and we can think, well, the gospel is about how much God loves me and has a plan for my life. And friends, if that's what you think about the gospel, you couldn't be more wrong. Your life is not the center of the gospel. It's the love of God that's the center of the gospel. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that God sent his son, that God desired for none to perish, that God desired for all to find life, that he's the center of the gospel. He's the center of the story. He's the center of your life. And the only thing, the one thing that can rival that, the one thing that can stop what it is that God wants to do in your life is pride. In James 4, verse 4, it says God opposes the proud. He stands opposite the proud. He distanced himself from the proud. So the first one is pride limits the work of Christ in our lives. Secondly, pride limits the authority of God's word in our lives. Pride not only limits the work of Christ in in our lives, pride limits the authority of God's word in our lives. If you look at the story, if you look in Mark chapter 11, what we've just read, talked about them coming and and Jesus is teaching in that moment and these religious leaders come and they disrupt what Jesus is saying. They come and just disrupt his words, disrupt his teaching. We're going to look in just a moment in in Mark chapter 10 at a story. Jesus gives the religious leaders a parable and in that moment he's speaking with a lot of Old Testament symbolism, scriptures they would have been very familiar with, stories they would have been familiar with. Even now, as we look at Scripture and we have the complete Scripture, we, we look and we see that this whole encounter, the things Jesus is saying, that in this moment, that it's even becoming Scripture. And yet in all of this, these religious leaders in their pride have no problem disrupting what Jesus is saying, what he's doing, or who he is. 
that they, from their vantage point, what Jesus was saying was just noise. It was just noise. It was just background noise that they needed to get through to get to where they wanted to go. They didn't hear God's word through him. They didn't hear God's voice through him. They didn't recognize anything he was saying or doing as being the scriptures being spoken in that moment. I think that really, really symbolizes for us how pride can limit the word of God's at work in our lives. It restricts it. It limits its word. When I, when I look in scripture and I think about the, the truth of God's word and its application in our lives, I'm reminded more recently of an acquaintance that I have who was on, on I, many years ago, was in ministry. He's in ministry many years ago, serving Christ, very passionate for him, uh, very, very excellent in speaking and the truth that he would share. And then over time, he made a choice to step away from ministry and he found a, a secular job that, that was well to take care of his family, but was still at times having opportunities to speak. But then I began to notice a trend over the years that because he began to, to experience some great financial success through his, his job, I began to notice a, a, a diminished respect for the Word of God and the application of God's Word in his life. That the better his life was, the more, the more finances he had, the more prosperous he was, the less God's Word seemed to matter. And even more recently on social media, Facebook posts and things like that, that there's been posts that would even around Easter weekend would even raise question as to the necessity of Christ dying for us. And, and really a number of things that, were came, that came up. And, and I look at his life and I look at this and I know there's much more at work, but I look at his life and I can't help but notice that the success he began to experience, and I believe the pride that was linked with it, was directly in, in association with the diminished application of God's word in his life. See, pride will always limit the authority of God's word in our lives. It will always limit it. It will always cause us to really question it or reason it away or find reasons not to apply or to think that it perhaps it applies to someone else. Look with me in, in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse number 12. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse number 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It says God's word exposes. God's word is meant to reveal. It's meant to cut to the heart. His word is meant to, it says at the end in verse 13, it says that, it says that nothing in creation, nothing in your life is hidden from God's sight. It says everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And friends, we've, we've talked about this often on Sundays. We've looked at it throughout the gospel of Mark, and it's very clear in scripture. The Bible teaches that there's coming a day that each individual will stand before God and give an account of their life. That they'll stand before God, this life will be over. This life will be but a blink and compared to eternity. And that each person will stand before God, and in that moment, you have to give an account of your life. I was sharing with someone recently in Psalm 20, 23, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, that because of him I lack nothing. That the greatest application of that I lack nothing is on that day when we stand before him. Because we'll stand before him and all we, we do is we point to Jesus and we say, I've placed my faith in Christ and because of faith in Christ, I lack nothing before God in that day. 
That it's through his love for Christ through me that I get to stand before him. But the Bible says that every individual will stand before God and give an account of their lives. And what this passage says is that God's word exposes and deals with every single thing of your life. That there are places and parts of your life and things and, and addictions in your life, things that you allow your mind to dwell on that no one else can see, no one else can think of. And it says in that moment, God's word will lay it bare. God's word will expose it. It'll expose it and it'll be seen. And so when I think about that moment and I think that God's word has the authority and the ability to completely expose my life before God in that final day, that if I take his word now and I begin to apply it, think about it now and consider it now and allow his word to speak into my life now, that that same power and that same authority has the ability to work in my life now. So that rather than waiting until that day before God to have things exposed and to have them identified as being inconsistent with his word, that right now as I spend time with him, as I spend time and I take time to read God's word, to study it and to apply it, that it has the ability now through the power of the Holy Spirit to show me things in my life that God wants to deal with now to save me from exposure or surprise or even embarrassment on that day, to expose in my life now the things that he wants to work with. Now, again, the one thing that can hinder the, work, the authority of God's word in our lives is pride. In fact, if you sit there and you listen and you hear the things that I'm talking about and you immediately think of other individuals who should be here listening and hearing the things that are being said, that's a sign of this very thing being at work in your life. That pride immediately diminishes the authority and the work of God in our lives. We hear something and we immediately think, ooh, so-and-so needs to hear that. Oh, if so-and-so would read their Bible in this verse, they would certainly be convicted. We've all thought that. But that's a moment to realize that pride is trying to diminish the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it doesn't even mean in this moment. It could be in your own, as you're sitting quietly and you're reading a verse and something comes to mind. Instead of looking for how it applies to others, look for how it applies to you. You might be sitting there this morning and think, well, you know, my, my desire is not to be a prideful life, but I, to have a prideful life, but I really struggle with, with being able to create time and space and to read God's word and not be distracted by it and to not be distracted by other things and to really focus in on, on even reading one chapter and just struggle with that. Then I would encourage you, first take, take time to pray. James tells us that we, we, we have not because we haven't asked. In other words, our lack is because we haven't asked God. So pray in that moment and say, God, give me a hunger. Give me a desire to read your word. And then take a step of faith and begin to read it. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, faith comes by hearing God's word. By spending time with it, allow his word to continue to build faith in your heart and in your life. And find a way to just find something that you can take and apply. One of the ways that, that I'll use is each morning or whenever I make the time, usually it's in the morning, but if it doesn't happen in the morning, it's a different space. And I will read scripture and, and I'll take some, whatever I've been reading, I'll try to find at least one verse and I'll write down that one verse and I'll begin to think about, I think of the, the word soap. Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And this isn't even original with me. I know others have, have used this before. Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. I'll find one verse. 
And I'll think about that verse. And if, as it's standing out to me, I'll say, God, I'm going to take that this one verse is standing out to me above the others as a sign that your Holy Spirit is speaking to me in the moment about this verse. And so I'll write down that one verse. And then next to it, I'll, on the next step, I'll write the, oh, I'll write the observation. I'll write out one observation about that verse that just stood out to me. The next step is I'll do is I'll take the A, the application. I'll then write out a way that that observation can be applied into my life for that day. And then I'll end with P, with prayer. I'll write out a prayer, even a short prayer. I'll write out a prayer, praying over that verse, praying it back to God, praying and inviting the Holy Spirit to work in my life. But scripture, observation, application, and prayer. A simple way to begin to look at God's word and say, God, I want your word to have authority in my life. I want your word to continually undermine the work of pride in my life. And I want your word to continually reveal to me the way you see my life so that my life can better align with who you are and your work in me. But pride will always diminish the authority of God's word in our lives. I think thirdly, That pride limits the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pride limits the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look in the story again. Look in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 31. The religious leaders, it says, they discussed it among themselves, the question that Jesus had put to them. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. In the moment, we see clearly that they, they saw their predicament. They knew the answer. They saw the answer. They just didn't want to give it. So it wasn't a matter of if they could not be convinced. It was, it, it was a matter that they would not be convinced. They refused to, to acknowledge the error of their way. And I think that in this moment with these these religious leaders gathering together and talking and and reasoning among themselves, I think it's a perfect example of how we can reason away the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives when pride's at work. That they continue to reason away and talk about and and look at all the different things and find find out their way to keep it the way they want it without giving the answer that would ultimately expose them for who they are. Pride always limits the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They were willing to reason away their inconsistencies so that they could continue to be right. That I truly believe that when it comes to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, the way Christ is working, the way that God's word works, the way his Holy Spirit works, he will continually work and try to draw our hearts to him. And the more we sit there and we reason away what it is that's being, what we're being convicted over, what we're seeing and recognizing it as being wrong, the more we reason it away, the more we tell the Holy Spirit we don't want his influence in our lives. That's why I tell individuals when we, at the end, we always open up the front as an altar response to God and allowing individuals to respond. As I encourage individuals, don't wait. The moment we open the front as a place to respond, don't wait. Don't sit there and think, well, what will others think about me? Should I, I could just pray in the car on the way home. You know, I could, I'll take a few moments at home and I'll write about it. That'll be good. I'll journal it. Respond in the moment. Don't reason away the working of the Holy Spirit in your life in that moment. You can still pray about it on the way home. You can still go home and write it down in your journal. But respond in the moment to what the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart. A willingness to respond with prompt and quick obedience to recognize how he's working. I want you to see something that really illustrates this. 
right after this encounter, Jesus shares a parable, and it's found in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. I want, you to, I want to read this to you. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verses 1. We'll go through verse 12. It says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He still sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenant said to one another, This is the heir. Let's come. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is, a mar- and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. And the story, the parable Jesus tells is really a picture of something they would have been very familiar with. It was full of Old Testament symbolism of the nation of Israel, of their rejection of God and of his prophets, a number of things. But it was really anchored in a very real scenario that, that there's instruction for found in the book of Levit- Leviticus. As if a farmer had a piece of land and he chose to rent it out, much like someone might have a home or even a piece of land here in town and choose to rent it out, the farmer could choose to rent it out and the, the tenants could come and they could begin to treat the land just as if it was their own. They had to pay the price to the, to the owner. But then the owner of the land was required every year to, to be able to obtain some amount of the harvest. It didn't have to be the best amount. It didn't have to be some of the, the kind that would be taken and sold. In fact, it could have just been leftovers that were not going to be harvested, that were not going to be given, but it was produced in the land. That, that, was, that was required by Levitical law, that they would take something that was produced in the land. The owner would take that. And that was a statement of their authority, a statement of their influence, and a statement of their ownership over the land. So when the tenants in the story are arguing and really are, are shaming the servants who come and they're beating them and they're ultimately killing them and they, they kill the son, the goal is not, they're not concerned about the fact that they're going to have to give up some of their harvest. What they're trying to do is they're trying to eliminate the ownership and the influence of the leader over the land. It was not concern over what was being produced. It was concerned over who held control. And so what Jesus is telling them is he said, he sent servant after servant after servant after servant, demonstrating mercy and kindness and striving with those tenants to try to get them to see the error of their way, to pull them back. And they kept saying, listen, we don't want any of your influence. We don't want any of your input. We don't want any of your authority. We're trying to lay claim to this land as being our own. So just keep out. And it really becomes a picture and the the leadership knew this. It was a picture of themselves, and it was a picture of the nation of Israel, of how God continued to strive with it by his Holy Spirit through prophet after prophet, and ultimately through Jesus Christ to come to the nation again and again and again and again. And I think it's a very clear picture in in my life and in your life that God, through his Holy Spirit, 
continues to strive with your life again and again and again. That if there's something in your life that's being produced that shouldn't be there, he's trying to show and, and give influence and to speak to it. And when we say, well, I don't, I, I'm really comfortable with things as they are, please don't come and, and try to influence my life or direct my life or convict me on those kind of things we're doing, much like the landowner, the tenants in the story that Jesus shared. In Hebrews chapter 3, and talking about the Holy Spirit, it says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. It says, today, when you hear his voice, respond. It's a reminder that the Holy Spirit is continually speaking to you. He's continually revealing in your life. He's continually drawing you to himself. His desire is that all would respond to the work that he's doing. And as we continue to respond, we continue to grow in understanding and insight and how he desires to work. But when we choose to allow pride to continue to get in the way, it leads to the fourth limit of pride in our lives. The fourth limit of pride is that pride limits insight and revelation. It limits insight and revelation. When you look in verse 33, when they refuse to answer Jesus, the religious leaders, Jesus says this. He says, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He says, you won't respond to my work. You won't respond to my word. You won't respond to the, the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Then I'm not going to show you anymore. First Corinthians chapter 2, a verse we've, we've looked at in recent weeks, talks about how the Holy Spirit works. And it says the Holy Spirit takes the unknowns about God and desires to make them known to us. Because God is a God who desires to reveal himself. He's a God who wants to be known. He's a God who wants to know you. He's a God who wants you to know him and to experience his peace and his presence and his freedom and his joy and peace that only he can bring. But when we resist him, we resist his word, we resist the influence of this Holy Spirit in our lives, then in the end, we close the very avenue of life that he's trying to give us. As I mentioned earlier in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah says, God desires to be your source of life, but you're settling for cheap substitutes. And when we choose to settle for a cheap substitute such as self, putting self in the center, letting pride rule our lives, thinking we're the first and the best, when we choose to settle for such a cheap substitute as self, we restrict and hinder the work that God wants to do and the insight his Holy Spirit wants to bring. So you might hear those four limits of pride, and, and I'm sure there's many more. But you might hear those four limits of pride and how they can restrict and impact our lives. And you might say, well, what's the answer? What's the solution? How do I disarm it? How do I disarm pride in my life? How do I disarm pride in my family? How do I disarm it? The answer is found in James chapter 4, beginning in verse number 7. James chapter 4 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. It says, submit yourselves to God. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The best way to undermine pride is to draw near to God to draw near in continued humility, in continued repentance, in continued confession, and continued selflessness. 
When we submit ourselves to God's authority, when we submit our hearts to his word, to his insight, and to his work of Christ, it keeps our heart open and responsive and humble before him. And I've, I've noticed in, in verse 8, it says, come near to God and he will come near to you. It's, this passage is written to Christians. It's written to believers. That believers choose to settle at different li- distances from God. That we could all be sitting in this room this morning and enjoying the presence of God, but according to this passage, we're all at different distances from him. It says that when we humble ourselves before him, we respond to his grace and his continued mercy and the continued drawing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that God is drawn to that, he's attracted to that, and he desires to work with greater freedom and greater purpose and greater life. So I would encourage you, Keep your heart open and keep your heart humble to any and every way the Holy Spirit may want to work. Listen and respond to anything that God may reveal to you and about you through his word and through the working of his spirit. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we close in prayer. And I would encourage you, friends, with whatever it is that God may speak to you, what may be impressed upon your heart, to respond with quick and prompt obedience. Respond quickly. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we are so grateful and we're so thankful for your grace and your persistent love in our lives. And Lord, we recognize that you're always working, that daily, moment by moment, you are working to draw us to yourself so that we may know you more and that our lives could be more like you. Your work, God, is to continually undermine the work of pride in our lives so that your Holy Spirit can work with full freedom and have full access.